Welcome to the first podcast in the Freshfield series, Managing Risk in Asia. My name is Nanette Dodu, and I'll be moderating the session. I'm a partner in the Beijing office, and I co-head the firm's competition practice in China. Our Managing Risk in Asia series bring together experts across a range of subject areas to share forward-looking insights on key risk areas for 2021. This podcast focuses on two risk areas, the ongoing geopolitical tensions and related escalation of sanctions and export controls and the risk of disputes. To discuss these topics, I'm joined by my partners, Nabil Youssef, a dispute resolution partner based in our Washington DC office, whose practice focuses on sanctions, export controls, and who advises clients on navigating geopolitical tensions. And John Chung, who is also a dispute resolution partner, and he is based in Hong Kong, and his practice spans litigation, arbitration, and increasingly advising clients on navigating the escalating geopolitical tensions and decoupling. We will conclude this podcast with a short roundup of top tips for 2021, and we'd be happy to continue this conversation with you and pick up on any of the points discussed during our whistle-stop tour of key risks. Let me begin with you, Nabil. Nabil, how can Asian companies effectively map risks related to the US and China uncoupling? Nanette, where to begin? 2020 has been a pretty unprecedented year in terms of the geopolitical tension between the United States and China. We have seen China targeted by uh, U.S. action in ways in 2020 that we have never seen almost ever. We really haven't seen the U.S. take uh, action in such a, a diverse set of ways as we have in 2020. And just you know, running down our list, there there have been sanctions export control restrictions, executive orders, uh, enforcement initiatives, securities delisting threats, and last but not least, of course, CFIUS. And so the way that Asian companies really can can map uh, the risk related to the what we're referring to as the uncoupling or the decoupling of the U.S. and Chinese economies is really to make sure that they've taken into account every one of these elements. And also, not just each of these elements, but also the, the potential evolution of these elements. We're spending a lot of time, and, and I know our clients are very worried about scenario planning sort of for better or for worse in each of these aspects. In particular, I think there is a real fear of the unexpected and not really knowing what is going to come next. And so I think the mapping ends up being a lot more crystal ball gazing uh, rather than an educated guessing, rather than being able to predict with any sort of meaningful accuracy what's going to happen. So one way in, in particular that we help clients map this risk is to come up with warning signs. What is the smoke that could potentially suggest that there is fire in a particular area? What are the signals that the U.S. administration might give if they are about to take action against China in a particular respect? As it concerns sanctions, we've seen the Hong Kong Autonomy Act. We saw the executive order that created the Section 1237 list. We've seen export control restrictions on Huawei escalating, targeting Chinese technology companies, the military end-use rule. We've seen executive orders against TikTok and WeChat. In the enforcement space, the Department of Justice has its China initiative. Uh, NASDAQ and congressional legislation have targeted U.S.-listed Chinese securities. And last but not least, uh, Civius's authority has expanded pretty significantly, which has created a broader blockage for Chinese investment in the United States in particular. So 
taking each of these elements into account is going to be necessary in order to effectively map the risk. And this is a lot different, I think, than it was a few years ago. A few years ago, if we were advising Asian companies or, or even third country companies on the potential U.S. risk, as it concerns China, we would be talking about a much, much smaller list. And we'd be talking about it in a way that I think was much more predictable. Thanks a lot for that, Nabil. Based on what you said, are you anticipating that businesses will change strategic direction in response to the increased global protectionism? Well, Nanette, we're, we're already starting to see that. Companies are building in much more protections in their agreements. They are preparing for the worst. At the same time, I think any good strategy takes into account the economic realities of the way that business is done. While companies like Huawei being targeted by significant U.S. export control restrictions, I think were, were relatively shocking and, and the use of U.S. export controls in a pretty unprecedented way against a really large multinational corporation was surprising. Uh, I think at the end of the day, this has shown that it is not really willing to commit complete and total economic suicide and really isn't looking to target companies in Asia, in particular in China, where the fallout to U.S. companies could be too significant. Or if, if there is a potential significant impact, to make sure that those actions also include at the same time some sort of protection for U.S. interests. So it's not to say that every sector... And every type of business has been impacted and will change in response to this. But there are certainly particular sectors that are more impacted than others. And as it concerns the Biden administration, I think we're expecting to see U.S. policy toward China to continue to trend in the same direction. There is huge bipartisan support. Uh, Democrats and Joe Biden alike, much like Republicans, uh, have found that action against China has been particularly politically popular. The Hong Kong Autonomy Act, for example, was passed unanimously by the House and Senate in something of the order of 36 hours. That is lightning fast for the U.S. Congress to act, and I think we should continue to expect to see uh, that type of action against China in the upcoming administration. So how are evolving global regulations and increased barriers impacting timelines and deal viability? So at this time, we're not really seeing a huge impact on deal viability any different than maybe 12 months ago. In a lot of ways, the U.S. action against China has been baked in for some time. The U.S.-China trade war that started with tariffs, I think, really had a chilling effect on trade and on transactions. But it is definitely creating, I think, some timeline risk, and it is definitely creating a lot more regulatory compliance and business strategic planning risk to companies in the middle of transactions in ways that I don't think we've ever seen before. One thing we're seeing that is really surprising has been companies starting to treat China in the same way, in some respects, that they would have treated a country like Iran or another sanctioned country. And obviously, China is not a, a sanctioned country. When companies see significant business in China, they're scrutinizing it a lot more than they used to. Thanks for that, Nabil. Uh, John, I'd like to turn to you. Uh, we've heard Nabil talking about the impact of geopolitical tensions from the U.S. perspective. How has China been reacting to the U.S. actions and rhetoric? And are we expecting to see any change to the Chinese response in 2021? 
Thanks, Dunhat. Well, what we've been seeing in 2020 from China um, are strongly worded responses and in some cases fairly limited reactive um, measures, um, actions taken by China. And I think it's a given that we will continue to see this in 2021. But picking up from what Nabil said earlier, if 2020 was the year when we saw the US start taking really serious action against China, to my mind, the question is whether in 2021, this will become the year when China um, in turn retaliates with much stronger action. We've seen some indications of this. We saw China's blocking rules issued which are designed to protect against and counteract the effects of the extraterritorial application of foreign law, at least where such law, in China's view, harms the interests of China or those of its nationals and companies. Now, this is the very latest legal tool that China has rolled out in recent months to protect its companies from sanctions, export controls, or other restrictive measures imposed by foreign countries, principally the United States. The big unknown is the extent to which China will use the suite of new legislation and rules at its disposal to respond to the actions of foreign jurisdictions. The recent unreliable entities list um, that China has issued is a great illustration of this. This list was issued in September 2020. Um, that's the regime, um, the unreliable entities regime list itself. Essentially, it acts as a blocking statute of sorts to respond to sanctions imposed by other governments, in particular the US. Now, it's taken well over a year for the list regime um, to actually be issued from the time when it was first announced. And in many ways, currently, this regime, the bark is really still louder than the bite, um, in the sense that the regime is intended, I think, to make companies think very carefully about the importance of the China business, about the relationship with China, about what they do. But yet, it is intended to avoid pushing companies beyond the brink, such that they decide to withdraw from China altogether. Um, well, it takes two to tangle and the real risk for us for the world economy really is to have the two key players on the world stage as well getting all tangled up amongst themselves so i think that's the risk in 2021 are we going to see um, stronger retaliatory action from china my sense is it depends on the steps the measures that the biden administration decides to take and then we might um, see a stronger re a reaction from china now, what does this mean to our clients? There will, unfortunately, be greater or continued deal uncertainty in 2021. Um, this means that our clients uh, will need to be much more reactive. Um, they will need to read the tea leaves um, carefully to continue to respond rapidly to changes in the political landscape to really avoid being caught in the middle, in, in the crosshairs of both China and the US, uh, particularly in sensitive industries or companies. But more positively, I think along with these challenges will come real opportunities. It will be a really interesting time for us as business lawyers, um, as in-house counsel, uh, because we will see um, these legal issues come to the fore, where they will play a pivotal role in business decisions on what you do with your business, in what actions you take or do not take, and in important decisions um, such as what companies um, you target, you acquire, and then what opportunities come onto the horizon.
Thanks, John and Nabil. These geopolitical headwinds are, of course, not limited to U.S.-China tensions. We are seeing tensions mount between China and some of its major trading partners, such as Australia, India, and the U.K. And more generally, there has been a noticeable increase in protectionist tendencies as various countries have sought to tighten foreign investment controls, especially as the pandemic took hold last year. This is set to continue in 2021. Some of the key jurisdictions to watch in 2021 include the US, with its CFIUS regime, as Nabil mentioned earlier, the UK, with its new National Security and Investment Bill, the EU, with its framework on the screening of foreign direct investment, and in the future, potential scrutiny of foreign state subsidies. I would add Australia, Japan and India, which recently tightened their foreign investment controls and China, which recently expanded the scope of its national security review regime, and where we are seeing a gradual increase in the number of national security reviews. I would like to transition to the topic of dispute risks and turn back to you, John. In the age of COVID, what have we been seeing in the dispute space? I would divide it up into into different phases. So I think in the initial phase, when COVID first hit, uh, we did see COVID causing some short-term disruptions. So, for example, um, there were a number of deals which obviously had been signed before COVID, but hadn't um, proceeded through to completion yet. And there were issues around who would bear the risks arising um, from COVID during this interim period. Um, there were, of course, arguments around material adverse change clauses, um, reps and warranties that have been made. But I think in this initial phase, um, a number of parties were able to work through the differences. In some cases, um, haircuts were agreed, deals were renegotiated and completed, or mutually dropped on both sides. And of course, there were a number of cases um, where proceedings were threatened or actually commenced. But that was largely in the first phase, and I think we've gone past that. In the subsequent phase, what we've really seen is COVID, as we know, has unfortunately um, continued um, for a much longer period than um, initially hoped for. And as a result, we are also seeing um, a second wave or subsequent waves of COVID, and that is continuing to cause market disruption. Now, in the dispute space, the extent of um, the impact of COVID has varied depending on factors such as the relevant industry. Geography has been important, but in general, I would say business dislocation is continuing. There are, of course, some hopeful signs of normalization, but the stress is still out there. Now, On the disputes front, we haven't to date seen a massive influx of disputes. Um, As I said, some of the cases involving, for example, SPAs um, or supply contracts to those working their way through the system, um, there hasn't been, as it were, a huge influx of uh, cases uh, making their way through the system. Uh, And looking ahead, do you anticipate increased pressure on companies arising from, uh, from disputes? I think unfortunately, but undoubtedly, that is the case. As I alluded to at the outset of COVID, um, there was much greater willingness, uh, I think, to grant initial waivers, um, consents, and I think just generally reluctance to take aggressive action. Part of this was because of the, I think, the initial shock of COVID and how quickly it mobilized the economy globally. But also there were uncertainties over how quickly or slowly these challenges would resolve themselves, there was generally just greater pragmatism 
greater sympathy even, I would say. Um, but with the subsequent waves of COVID, I do think patience is wearing thin. What we are seeing, and this is notwithstanding the availability of vaccines, um, what we are seeing is greater reluctance, for example, to grant continued extensions of waivers. We're seeing more action, more pressure being brought to bear on counterparties. And I think the gradual rollback of COVID-related government measures will increase the pressure on underperforming businesses. Liquidity pressures, of course, out there and can only increase. And I think, unfortunately, all of this will mean uh, subsequent waves of litigation. Now, having said that, I'm not sure we are going to see a huge explosion of cases in 2021. If I look back at um, previous crises, for example, the Asian financial crisis or the global financial crisis that followed, in all these cases, it took a number of years for the cases to go through the system. We saw a range of reactions in previous crises, and they will be similar in this case, I think, where there are situations where parties in Asia took urgent action, but by and large, and particularly in Asia, I would say, um, parties were still keen to try to find workarounds, compromises, um, to try to sustain the longer-term business relationship. But I think part of it is also a recognition of the realities of Asia, which is where um, the dispute resolution process um, through the courts in particular are generally just less efficient, are much slower, there's greater variability, there's greater enforcement risk. And so all these factors do contribute to a general reluctance to uh, push the button on legal proceedings prematurely. How has Asia fared in your view relative to other regions? When we talk about Asia, I think it's important to appreciate that really Asia is not a monolithic whole. Obviously, all of us who live in Asia are aware of that. There are some parts of Asia which are fared very well. But of course, elsewhere in Asia, um, unfortunately, the death rates have been high and COVID has had a real big hit on the economy. So this, I think, will translate into future economic performance and indeed um, into the risk of disputes arising. And this is, I think, an area where the law itself may well play a difference because arguably, I think, the jurisdictions which are able to resolve these differences, these disputes more effectively, more efficiently, I think these may well be jurisdictions that recover uh, more quickly. Uh, whereas conversely, legal systems which are less efficient, where the dispute resolution mechanisms um, just get bogged down, I think where you're not able to effectively enforce legal rights, um, where you're not able to enforce your claims, you're not able to pump liquidity back into the companies which deserve um, to survive and thrive, I think these are the economies and jurisdictions where there will be um, a corresponding adverse knock-on impact on the economy for a number of years. You mentioned law adapting. Which areas do you see the law developing and adapting? Yes, I think if we look at this crisis, what is perhaps unusual about it compared to past crises is that the focus hasn't really been on the conduct of private actors, if you compare it to, say, the global financial crisis. Um, rather, a great deal of the debate, and I think the litigation that is to come, um, have focused on broader principles, such as allocation of risk, assumption of risk, which party should really be assuming the risk of COVID. 
And of course, these are largely legal questions. For example, questions over what the supply contract means, um, over how you construe its provisions, um, questions over how you share risk or allocate risk under the terms of an SBA. Here, clearly, contractual provisions will play an important role, and I think this will in turn lead to uh, the development of the law. So a number of these legal issues are starting to come up for hearing, and indeed, some judgments have already been rendered in this space. Um, so, for example, we're starting to see guidance from the courts, uh, specifically on questions such as how COVID should be dealt with under force majeure provisions, under material adverse change clauses. Interesting questions are already um, being litigated upon um, and decided upon. Looking ahead, what can we learn from the past based on what you've said and what key developments and trends do you foresee? I'll just quickly mention, I think the first development is COVID really has underscored the importance of choosing an effective and efficient dispute resolution mechanism. And to some extent, it's thrown out the rule book on some of the traditional thinking around court systems as an effective, efficient means of resolving disputes. Because what we've really seen in COVID is... In particular, the arbitral institutions have been able to move the cases along much more quickly and effectively than many court systems. Uh, many of our arbitration hearings are still continuing in a more flexible format, but in a relatively efficient format. And we continue to hold full merits hearings and we have um, over the past year. Um, notwithstanding um, disruptions caused by COVID. And the same really cannot be said for many of the courts in the region and beyond. So I would say one point here is arbitration has come to the fore and its, its strengths and benefits that have become more apparent um, during the COVID period compared to alternatives uh, for resolving disputes. A second point looking to the future again is that we will be seeing an increase in business distress and insolvency. That's a given. Even when we look across Asia, we are seeing an increased debate over whether Asia in the years to come will evolve to become a more creditor-friendly jurisdiction. And there are clearly strong social and other political reasons and pressures for doing that, or whether Asia will be adapter-friendly. And, and that's a real debate uh, that I think will become more important. This increase in business distress and solvency, I think it will impact not just on the primary investment or, or shareholding that one has, but it will have a real knock-on impact on other players in the industry. So, for example, where investments have been made on more optimistic terms in Asia, the impact of COVID is such that it's become much more challenging to meet those targets. Uh, we will see, um, and we are seeing already, disputes materialising, for example, in joint ventures where the joint venturers have different views on how to deal with the challenges brought on by COVID, we will see an increase, I think, in the risk of wrongdoing, where businesses under stress, employees under stress, are looking for quick solutions and shortcuts. So I think that's the second area where we will see real concern um, in the year ahead. Just flowing on from that, um, I can put a question to you. Um, I know you've been involved in a lot of antitrust disputes um, recently. So what are you seeing uh, in that space? We should prepare for a more contentious and litigious environment. First, we are likely to see a higher volume of deal disputes in the M&A context as competition authorities become increasingly interventionist and challenge deals. Companies may also rely on antitrust as a key determinant of deal outcomes. 
We've seen this play out already in a few deals, where companies have relied tactically on antitrust and turned to litigation to renegotiate deal terms as a result of the pandemic and evolving market conditions. Second, with tech companies high on the enforcement agenda of several competition authorities, for example, in the US, the EU, Japan, China and Australia, to name a few, we're likely to see an uptick in tech companies needing to defend themselves before competition authorities or the courts. For example, China's competition authority recently published draft guidelines on the digital platform economy. It called into question certain practices, such as exclusivity arrangements, price parity clauses, MFNs, discriminatory pricing. We could see an uptick in antitrust complaints and litigation against digital platform operators, as well as an increase in disputes between rival digital platform players. Finally, disputes over standard essential patents and friend licensing involving wireless communication standards are also likely to remain a focus in 2021. I'd like to end with some key takeaways from John and Nabil on the risks we discussed as we look ahead to 2021. Turning to you first, Nabil, in terms of geopolitics and sanctions, should we continue to expect an escalation or deceleration of the geopolitical situation? And how can businesses manage and mitigate this risk? I think we should expect the trend with respect to escalation and potentially more tit for tat uh, between the US and China to, to continue in the current direction for the foreseeable future into 2021. And in the Biden administration, there is legislation from Congress that could potentially include additional restrictions, reporting obligations against uh, Chinese companies. Uh, and that sort of thing isn't going to really slow down. There are other elements of, of U.S. sanctions policy that might relax over time, particularly in the coming four years. Uh, but as it concerns China, it doesn't look like it's going to be uh, winding down. The, the best thing that companies can do is really just make sure that they're actually examining the risk in a real-time fashion. And based on the latest information, it's just an incredibly fast-moving space right now where uh, every week there's either an action or a reaction or a market shift in the way that parties are, are viewing the risk in this space. John, what can businesses in Asia do to manage dispute risks in 2021? I would say, and just building on what Nabil just said in relation to the escalation of tensions, I would say I think it's important to look carefully at your contractual terms, scrutinise them, consider whether they deal with the full suite of unexpected events. Because the reality is we are living in a world of increased uncertainty of risk. It's important to remain nimble, um, to maximize optionality in entering the contracts with counterparties. Think carefully about how we can effectively structure the transaction uh, such that if things go wrong, you're in a position to respond rapidly, um, effectively to find a remedy. And I think importantly to get at the underlying assets um, before all the creditors um, come knocking. Thank you, Nabil and John. Thanks also to all our listeners. I encourage you to listen to part two in this Managing Risk in Asia series. Our next podcast focuses on people, data and cybersecurity risks.